you would be completely out of place if you live like a Sierra Leonean in America. Mm -hmm. Um, and in some ways that wouldn't be, maybe it wouldn't even be good, um, as far as work goes, because it would, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense in our cultural context. Now on the other side, how do we, you know, like there's a glorification of productive work, um, in the States and, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really hard not to, to fall into it. And it's really hard to resist. Um, Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? Again, brought to you from our new studio. That's right. If you can't see it, you can't see our neon sign that says Mr. Who You? Question mark. That's right. To find out more about that, you're going to have to listen to the podcast. But that is a quote directly from Sierra Leone in West Africa. Ladies and gentlemen, today I bring you Austin Kleiss. That's right. Austin Kleiss, a field worker from Sierra Leone, returns to talk about something called re-immersion. Immersion again, to be membered again in America. What's it like? What's he learned? What kind of man has he become? And actually, there's some really interesting stuff in here about dough about cash, about money. That's right. Austin Kleiss, returned Peace Corps volunteer, philosopher, businessman, and just all-around cool guy about to get married, a First Things Foundation special on... Why are we talking about rabbits? Austin Kleiss. Uh, welcome. Look at you. How you been? Good, man. How are you doing? Guys, this is Austin uh field worker from first for first things basically a year and a half then pandemic came came back and worked in appalachia you were in sierra leone that's right that's right kylon sierra leone now we're going to talk about re-immersion or resurrection how it goes when you come back to life in america and how you've been doing but before we do i want to point something out to everybody if you listen it on Apple or whatever, that's cool. But you really got to check out the new studio. That's painting. That's that, like this is intentional, Austin. Do you see the colors? I do. Yeah, it's uh, it's cool. So, what is that? Is that a, a green screen? What is what is behind you? No, we created a studio, and that oh. is painted on the wall. Amazing. That's uh, that's at your house. Yeah, that's at our house. And you can see that you can write on the wall with this paint and you can see your name there. I got to I got to work on that. But it says Austin Kleiss, First Things Foundation. <laughs> it looks good. I think do you have to write it the other way so it appears on camera the, the correct oh, way? Oh, I, I got to write backwards, don't I? Is that possible? Am I smart enough to do that? I don't think I can do it. I couldn't do it. That's for sure. Now, I have to point something out to our viewers because I'm going to be pointing this out for a little bit uh, as we do some more podcasts in our new studio. There is a glow light sign up. It's hard to see. We're working on that because we're getting a new camera. Like, this is a full installation. Austin, we're not playing around anymore. It's the real deal. The real deal. But if you notice, this actually comes from Sierra Leone where you served. The light, it's hard to see, but when we get our camera, you'll be able to see it better. The light reads, that the, the illumined neon light reads, Mr. Who You, 
question mark. And this is from one of the <laughs> one of the KK, one of the the buses. You know how they put at the top like a la carbon or like God is with us and all that stuff. Yeah. This is one we saw in Sierra Leone, Mr. Who You question mark. And, and you so, just bought it off the guy? Well, I bought that uh neon sign because we're gonna collect various cool sort of chicken bus type type titles from around the world now that we're in Mozambique. And basically wherever you go in these countries called developing, as you know, Austin, you will see that the local transport drivers name their trucks, all kinds of different things. And one truck from our past was called Mr. Who You question mark. Yeah, that's uh there's so many crazy names out there. I couldn't even I couldn't even start and how they're decorated with the big fuzzy dice and the uh, whatever tennis rackets and all sorts of things. Tennis it's hard to describe, but you know, maybe the there'll best. be a thumbnail for this uh podcast that could show it. It's the best. In Mali, I used to see all kinds of crazy ones too. Like Allah is watching. That was one. Oh yeah. Yeah, they're I mean, <laughs> a lot of them are like probably pretty heretical and um just all over the place like god is money or something like god's money <laughs> that's another one that's another one here's one that we ordered in neon it's on its way voice of japan number four <laughs> that was on a truck <laughs> that was no one knows what it what i like is when they like the translations kind of messed up and you're like i think he's trying to say like who are you to god mr who you i just love this stuff it's just yeah, it is hilarious. Language. Voice of Japan number four. That was also on a truck in West Africa. A lot of good ones. A lot of we're good gonna, ones. We're going to sure. collect them, various ones. If the audience has been to any wacky country, like on a chicken bus in Guatemala, the, you'll notice they also name their trucks. Uh, send us in suggestions for really cool developing, I don't know, Global South type transportation monikers. That's what we're going with. Austin, how's America since you've been back? Uh, I think America's doing well. Uh, I haven't asked her lately, but um, <laughs> I uh, it's uh, no, the transition has been has been all over the place. But yeah, like you said, I kind of got that soft landing. So I came from Sierra Leone into Appalachia, you know, then back to real life, you know, quote, quote, That's true. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I feel very fortunate that I got that because because otherwise it would have been a rough, a rough sort of transition back, I would say. But um, it wasn't. Can I toast your arrival back with my. What do you drink? What do you got? What do you got there? Well, I have a little like a little powdery drink, a little health drink that I'm I'm sipping on. <laughs> You always have something like something that. weird. <laughs> something weird does not have steroids in it. It's just a little powdery drink. It's just pure testosterone. It's delicious. Uh, no, the toast is is really not to your arrival back home. You've been home for a long time, but to uh, serving successfully with us and then coming back home. What do you think the hardest, or what's what's the most difficult? Um, transitional thought you had and continue to have um when you think about the cultures juxtaposed side by side west african culture and culture of the west or america what 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 jumps out at you 
Yeah, I I would say as a transitional thought, this isn't maybe the most just sort of stark thought I had when I went to Sierra Leone, because there's all the sort of thoughts that during that transition that are different. But but coming back to America, dealing with this idea of discipline, what is discipline and what is work um, was hard because in Africa, it's work is perceived very differently than it is in America. Um and trying to understand what is an inap- on an abstract level actually good and then how to how to manifest that in both places because you kind of learn a particular mm-hmm. way of being in Africa that's just different from a work perspective than it is in America and then getting back here and like oh I now have to think differently about these things um yeah. so that was hard um thinking through the, the thinking through how to do work well uh back in America was was really hard how did work change in its in its nature in your mind when you came back? Was it that there was, I don't know, there was a lot of busy work going on or work was less important or what, what happened to your old concept of work? I think, so I would say, at least in the villages of Sierra Leone, that it's still like a traditional economy. And what I mean by that is it's, subsistence like it's a subsistence living and what you do is you work to the extent you need to work to support your family or whatever it is like your your occupation whether you're a farmer whether you're a a palm wine guy whatever whatever you have um and then you come back and you do things around the house or whatever but there's a lot of times just like doing community things let's say like casual community things where you're just like talking to people or Mm -hmm. cooking something that's not necessarily work as we would define it then when you get to america the bifurcation between like the professional life and the personal life becomes a lot starker. Um, And in some ways you try to maximize, or at least the culture seems to try to maximize the professional work you do um, versus doing it on just a subsistence level, doing the minimum you need to do to kind of get by. Mm -hmm. And so that's a different concept. Um, And how do you deal with that? when you get back is it's just kind of weird. Like it, it's like, what problems am I solving? What am I thinking about? Um, oh yeah. That's I... an interesting one. Yeah. What, what is this extra two hours doing to me? And for, for whom am I putting in the extra? In other words, extra becomes a thought, right? Excess. I also think history, like, in some ways, everything feels like it's progressing towards something in America. And now that's a false. I think that's that's not true. Mm. It's not actually progressing towards something. So you feel like your work is culminating in some in some very you know distant future point. Whether it's like that promotion that gets talked about or whatever it is, or the ah, yes. you know you're hitting this goal. Whereas in Africa, that just doesn't exist. Like oh, you're you're a farmer. You're going to be a farmer doing the exact same thing essentially your whole life. There's no change. Done. Uh, yeah. And. And in some ways that's really freeing. Um, and it's just what you do. You just do the thing you do. It's not like you're thinking of some future date where it's going to change. And like, so there's no, there's no idea of progression. History is still. Um, so that's well, I don't know. Said. that's well said. And so talk for a minute, maybe about the philosophical notion of progress. It's something like an, a, a bottom to top or a below to an above. And that linear that 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 type of concept uh that was rooted out of me was it rooted out of you on some level like are you progressing 
as a human and like toward what end? Because it always ends in death. You're like, yes, I'm progressing toward my death. Like what? Right. Yeah. It's, it's something I'm still thinking through. So maybe some of my language is vague around it, but yeah, I, I would say at an abstract level, I think the notion is that, um, that you're, you're progressing towards some goal, let's say in America and culturally just as a whole, like we're progressing towards the next election where things are going to finally change or the next mm. one after that, where they're going to finally change, or it's towards, we implement, you know, towards implementing this system or towards implementing this sort of systemic change, these sort of words we hear a lot. Um, and it's hard not to get swept up in that of like, oh, cool. Like if I just become part of this external progression, whatever that is, if it's systems, if it's philosophies, if it's political machinations, things will eventually change. If it's work, right? If it's the actual work you're doing, you're part of this external system of like changing and you're going to like launch your company and it's going to be an IPO and there's right, going to be a right, lot of right. money or whatever versus maybe um, the African no notion where it's like you're changing there's part of you that's changing, but nothing really externally ever kind of changes. It's kind of the same in some ways. Like that's, don't worry about the external. Um, and in some ways they're not that worried about the internal either, but in, but it's, I would say that's a lot more present than. So than, external here is something like material. The, ma the material does not, it, the expectation is the material is not going to quote, get better or something. It's, it's the material reality is more static. It, the best, I think the best example of this, and I just thought of it now is, is when a lot of co companies and nonprofits come into Africa, what do they try to change? They try to change the external, right? They build the bridge, they build the yep. well, they build the whatever. Like if we change the external, things will be better. If we progress towards the external, it'll, we're going to get there, right? We're going to win. Um, however you want to describe it versus the actual like Sierra Leonean mindset of like, no, 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 actually that's, that's not what's important. That, that doesn't matter. And so that manifests in people just seeming like they're lazy and don't care about those sort of things. Um, yeah. I, did you have that experience where he's like, people here are really lazy. At least when you first get here, there you're 100%. like. 100%. So Molly was like just lazy dudes for about six months because also you got to realize because they're adhering to the vagaries of the natural world, the seeds had been planted. And so there wasn't much to do, like actually, right. <laughs> at, at least for, for the men, because the, the work was always gender bifurcated. Like women were almost always in motion. They were right. grinding and chopping and boiling and, but when the when the when the farming was done for that moment, it was like done. Guys would sit around and chew chew on cocoa leaves and drink palm wine. I remember when I first went to Kenya. Um, the only time I went to Kenya, but I, I went there, and this was before Sierra Leone, and I was working on a banana farm. And I remember like thinking, having the notion of like, oh, these poor Africans—they have you know—they're working thirteen-hour days in the sun, you know, farm, and it's like. We worked, you know, like an hour in the morning and a couple hours in the evening when it wasn't super hot to like harvest these bananas. And then mm -hmm. it was like, and then you're kind of just done, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you get it. Like you said, the, the work is done. The work is done. And so, you know, relating that back to the US, the hard concept is like, it feels weird to just sit. Like that is not, mm -hmm. that is not a normal, like 
it's not a normal thing. Like, oh yeah, I'm just going to sit. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to, the work is done. I'm just going to hang out. Like, yeah. But this gets like, into, so there is, I think both of us would agree. There is such a thing as a Protestant work ethic, right? It's not, that's not a crazy concept. It's real. No, I, I mean, it's absolutely a, a thing. I mean, it, but let's do some history then. And, and let's do some theology then. Okay. It's a work ethic from protesters. <laughs> so this is interesting. And you're a Catholic guy, right? Right. So the protesters came up with a work ethic. Now, I've always wondered, why is there work? And it's different than the Catholic work ethic. Let's just be honest. Catholics, especially Southern Mediterranean, like you're like, that dude's kind of lazy. <laughs> like, look at the Greeks. They couldn't keep up with the Germans. And basically, like all hell broke loose. So what are the protesters, the Protestants working towards? It's always so interesting. Is it their salvation? Because it's kind of no. tied in. I, it's tied into their salvation, but I think it'd be wrong to say they're working towards their salvation because because the Protestant notion of salvation is either you have it or you don't, at least right. in the, at least in the Reformed right. world, right? So I think they're working as a sign of their salvation. So I like Max Weber's thesis when Me he too. says um, the Protestants are working as a as a sort of sign that they have been saved, right? Because the saving comes at some specific point and then you need to know if that like you need to work out that salvation anxiety like am i one of the elect or not because because there's nothing i can do about it but i want to know otherwise it's just going to be a very excruciating life not knowing if i'm if yeah. i'm among the fold yeah and weber he points out that it's not a conscious it's not a conscious i will do this therefore i will show everyone i'm saved it's not cynical like that but there's something ingrained in the human psyche or the soul that wants to know how it all ends. <laughs> you know, that's that's that drives itself through that concept drives through Islam. It's all the pagan world. How does this end? Do I end with a, a, being a rich king in Babylon? They, people want to know this stuff by nature. And so what would happen is, is people would subconsciously, or I don't, that's a Freudian concept, but would in their spirit see someone gain something like wealth or prestige because they built a nicer fence. And it would sort of be in the water then that I needed a nicer fence. Not so much to prove that God is pleasing to me, but I would gain prestige that would in the end make me feel like I was an elect. And so there was this weird consciousness among Europeans, especially as they came to the United States. And I think that's fascinating. The problem though is, uh, then what do we do when we come back from Africa when this starts to pop up around us and we start to recognize that maybe that ethic isn't what I wanna participate in it anymore. Do we become the lazy ones? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Like what it's like working when you come back to the United States and when you think about the United States, like there's something that seems like it's inherently good about just like working and doing productive work. So work that's, you know, earning an income or whatever it is. But I think what Africa taught me was that that's actually not the case, right? Like there's, there's things that transcend that and working to work, working to as a sort of external thing maybe that notion is 
is upside down. But then how do you deal with that? How do you yeah. like actually live, <laughs> live that way when you're back is it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I don't know. Here's a challenge to you. Tell me what you think of this. What I learned and what you're describing and my conclusion is, is that culture is so powerful that no one frees themselves from it. So like the obese culture, I'm always like, I'm going to be in good shape. Well, there's a whole obesity factor to the West. Yeah. You cannot escape it on some level. You will be heavier. And hopefully you'll be heavier in a healthy way. But my point is, is you move toward that. That's why the West, that's why you can always, oh, there goes an American, you know, at the Indonesian airport. Like there's something big about us. Because there's something big about our culture. We get shaped and made in the in the, in the image of the culture. And, and I think that's the same with the work ethic. I don't know that I can live in Africa anymore. I'm torn. But the problem is it's like the matrix. I took the pill. And I'm in the right. culture, but I'm aware. And it gets it's it can be frustrating. Yeah, there's like a a sort of pain deep down inside because you would be completely out of place if you lived like a Sierra Leonean in America. Mm -hmm. Um, and in some ways that wouldn't be, maybe it wouldn't even be good, um, as far as work goes, because it would, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense in our cultural context. Now on the other side, how do we, you know, like there's a glorification of productive work, um, in the States and, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's really hard not to to fall into it and it's really hard to resist um but how you know but but maybe there is something is in need there to resist uh so i've i've struggled with that i don't i don't i don't i don't come bearing an answer um that's a good that's only, a good thing i think i've yeah. only come bearing more problems <laughs> <laughs> i know but your experience is helping me talk to people about our work but also I think I think deep down there is an awakening. I think there's a waking up. I do think that this generation and you're older, but I think 18 to, you know, 23-year-olds, 24-year-olds they're smelling see see I used to just be the old guy. And they don't work hard. And now I just no. What's happening is is there's a degree of wokeness that we should embrace, which is something like the culture can't go like this. It can't keep going like this. And the young people tell us that. Now, their answers to the problem would get weird, in my humble opinion. <laughs> like, it's it's one thing to hear the prophet of, at 18 years old tell me their pain. It's another thing for them to then come up with the answer and we all just bow down before an 18-year-old answer. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. But we should listen to their pain, no? I think we should. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think uh, there's a lot of the the zeitgeist of the culture is changing, and it kind of goes back to this question of history too. Of of we're very much aware in the West of this idea of history and like the need to progress to something more and to change and do all these things, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the 18 year olds and the 23 year olds are on the precipice of like. They sense that we're at the end of another age where things Absolutely. start needing to, are, are needing to change again. Um, and so like in our vocabulary, it's that's why we are kind of getting these getting this vocabulary that's like around um, you know, around changing these systems and around changing these things and and 
because it's coming from some sort of angst within, you know, within all of us in some way. Well, you as a late 20s, right? 3 0. 3 0. Hey, you're a handsome 3 0. As a 3 0, we don't have to get in depth because I know you're in public, but you're getting married to a very lovely, I don't know, late 20 something. You guys are going to get settled down or whatever maybe likely have kids are you like my generation 50 somethings they're like rah, rah, rah. but i i think it goes all the way down into you guys to to the 30 year olds i think you're also a little nervous right I, you're probably nervous a little bit about what your kids like what the new thing brings and how does it affect you know, the old things that you have in your soul. Do you get nervous or are you oh, yeah. not I mean, nervous because of your youth about what's coming? I think in some ways, um, I think in a, in a grand, in a, in a, in a very grand scheme, I'm not that nervous. Um, like in the end, you know, like I think in the, in the Christian mind, in the end it's, it's optimism. Um, and, mm. A sort of hope um but absolutely on the immediate like you know 10-year plan it's you know things are chaotic in the west it's just like uh you have no idea the sort of things culturally kids are going to be exposed to and this is why the benedict option and all these sort of mm. um troglodyte solutions to our problems are are popular and i and i get that and so it's on do you one embrace hand, them you, do you embrace them maybe like i a hybrid version of that, like Grace and I've talked a lot about homeschooling and what that could look like. And, um, are you weird so for they, thinking of that in your, is the 30 year old age group? Are they, are they, are they thinking of homeschool? Because I know that was weird 15 years ago. To do it homeschool. was weird. I think it's becoming less weird. It's becoming more, I mean, it's all your culture. I mean, in some ways we're surrounded by other people who do that. And so it's not that crazy. Um, yeah. Okay. But I, yeah, yeah, I think uh, it's it happens at a cultural level. Like, what, what's, who are the people around you, and and how weird do they think you are? Um, but yeah, I still feel, especially coming back from Sierra Leone, like I still feel like an odd duck in the U.S. Because like yeah. we've talked about before, just with economic matters, um, maybe not with all theological matters, but with economic matters for sure. It's like you come back from FTF and you're like, wow, I I really see the economy and how money should be handled. And Isn't that crazy? totally differently. Yeah. Um, totally differently. And so that even in some of these homeschooling circles, let's say, uh, I feel like I'm still like an outlier as in regards to some of my economic positions. And things let's like talk that. about that real quick. Both of us had the same conversion of mindsets regarding economics. I just had mine in the nineties. You had yours in, I don't know, two th early 2020s. Um, how would you characterize the way you see money and banking now after you've come home? I think, so again, tying this back to Sierra Leone, one thing that I found shocking was um, if a business does really well in Sierra Leone, like let's say you're selling cassava and you're like doing it really well. Killing like you're making, you're killing it. The you're making root a lot is of, moving. You are moving root. Right. You're moving the root, which it's, traditionally you're not going to just in that economic system, you're not going to like be, you have a monopoly, but let's say you get the right. monopoly, you're doing yeah. really well, blah, blah, blah. 
there's a good chance that you're not going to have much more wealth than the person right next to you because you're giving it away um, to your family, to your friends, because everyone's seeing, oh, you have money, like you, yeah. you owe me that money. Like it's like a sort of obligation that you give it away because it's like, oh, you have that, like you have food today. Like, oh, that means you have to give me some. And it's like an, ob- it almost feels like um, people take it for granted. Oh, like you have that, you, like you should give it to me. And so, so the wild. top, at least in, at least the community level at the top 10% are really close to the bottom 10% because there's this sort of communitarian yeah. distribution of wealth, right? Um, that happens not from the government, that happens not from any sort of political system. It just happens at the family level, right? Like you just mm-hmm. give it away. And I thought that was crazy. Uh, I was I like, know. this doesn't make sense because you should save that money. And this is right out of the spirit of process and ethic by Weber. But I was like, you should save that money and then reinvest it in your business. And like, mm-hmm. then you'll reinvest in your, in your business will grow and you'll get more money. And then you just reinvest that money and you just keep doing this thing. Right. Um, and so my, my, the shift in my mindset came from, does excess go towards a reinvestment for more? So you can create more excess or does it go towards like the common good, the immediate good of the people around you? So like, how do you use your wealth for the people right here and now, instead right. of like this sort of, I always need to save it and invest and it's like always doing things for me. Um, I would say that changed primarily. And then, cause you're a commie. You're such a commie. <laughs> no, see, I mean, see, I, that's the narrative though, right? Now you go, wait a minute, what happened to Austin? You sound kind of... You sounded like maybe you want to take something that's not yours or like you support welfare or something, right? Can you feel you fall into that that narrative? Now you've become politicized if you bring that message back here, right? Totally. Yeah. And if if anyone knew me before, like they would they would laugh at that because like I'm one know, of I'm, the people who knew you before and I, I right, laugh. yeah. But I, I mean, knew what um, was happening. So that so no, I mean communism is and like social distribution of wealth at an economic or a political level is completely different. And yep. it doesn't work because it it lacks love. It lacks the idea of it's not about the end of people getting the wealth. It's not about it's not really about you getting the 10% you're owed from your friend. You are owed that in some way, but it's more about them through their love giving it to you, mm. which could never happen at a at a political scale, right? It's not like the government's going to come in and love and and take what's not theirs and give to you know those who need it. It's more about the local community members through sort of a love or at least a duty wanting to give this away because their their friends and family don't have. Yeah. Um, so forcing people to give it away is doesn't work. Like I would rather have capitalism in some way because I don't want to because because then it's taking away the love. Like there's no love in forcing people to give it away, right? Um, right. So I. I don't think it falls into either of those neat camps. Um, this sort of idea of the common good. And and I think I was up in Steubenville bringing in one of our new field workers, a guy named Jacob. And I bumped into a whole bunch of new poverty people. And what I learned is, is that what's happening in, I would say, okay, let's do it. I think in libertarian circles, in Orthodox Christian circles, uh, I saw Catholics doing what I thought was happening in those circles exactly the same way, which is re they're not reimagining, they're returning and membering again, remembering what has always been. And I think that's the answer of what the economy will look like, but not before a war. 
there's going to be a war because there's too many people invested in what has been. That's where I'm I'm going with that. What do you think about that? I I like the Solzhenitsyn thesis that it just takes one of us to do it, and um, like the evils of our current system can be usurped through. Yeah. individual people or individual families, let's say, doing good things and changing their hearts. Um, so like you see the local cheese shop in your town and now you're like, oh, I want to invest in that instead of Amazon stock. Oh, cool. Like I want to give to the cheese shop owner because right. like they're doing something good for the community. And yeah, you're going to make less money or maybe no money or whatever. Um, well, no, I see, go, go back. It is less money. It is. I, I don't. I don't think the way reality is structured, it will be no money. Like, I think that reality is structured in a way, and this, of course, is a very ancient Christic understanding, is that there's just excess. I mean, you just throw seeds on the ground, and we saw it in Africa. They're going to grow. Something's going to grow. And so, but it's less. You know what I mean? If you tend it a lot, and you get big factory, I mean, big big farm implements and the biggest combines, you can just go crazy, and you can build... A massive farm. I get, I get it. But if you just let it grow, it'll grow. And I don't think we're in that space. But I like what you said. You'll have less money. Now, can we do that in, in America? Can we be less people money and still be Americans? Hmm. I think there's hope. I mean. Less money. Yeah, I, don't, I, I, I think it's hard, do? obviously. Yeah, it's. It's tough uh, on some level, but you do see like the minimalist movement happening and I don't know, some things that kind of give you hope, but I don't think you can do it without Christianity. So I think that would have to happen first um, hey, because it doesn't make sense. Austin, let me just take a break for one second and we'll be right back. Andrew, swipe it. Hey, everybody, it's spring. It's baseball season. You know what else it is? It's time to recruit for the Georgian Republic. I want to quickly mention that we are recruiting for a new field worker in the Georgian Republic for this current rotation. So money's a tough one, right? Because it sort of is wound up in our identity. Um, language is another tough one because, you know, we battle in America over language and people should speak English in America. And then that goes back to our, well, are we English? What is English to me? And, I learned a ton about language uh, in First Things and Peace Corps and IOCC in Georgia. What did you learn about language? Isn't it something? It's a wacky thing, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely definitely is something. I think a good example is in Mende, I believe the word for um, welcome is give chicken, and which is informative because it's like what you're supposed to do when you're welcoming a guest is you give them a chicken uh, or a goat. I know Daniel kind of collected a number of just like different animals and all the different places he went because people would just be like, oh yeah, like here you go. Here's a right. chicken. Welcome. That's kind of how you think about it. I think the other thing that's interesting is there's no word, I believe, in Mende for wife or there wasn't because that wasn't a concept because it comes from like a right. polygamous uh tribal religion and so oh this is this is informative like i know something about these people because there's yeah. no word for wife it's not yeah. it's not a christian context primarily that they're coming for when there was just a one man and one woman 
right. bond of marriage, right? So I think there's some on the nose ones like that that definitely help I, inform. I just, yeah, I I loved playing with uh, Bambara and Malinke and French and then English, and you started to see like you can't you can't fully immerse in another person's life until you speak that language. And by the way, this goes for my marriage. We both speak English, supposedly. <laughs> But there's a um, there's a language to my wife's body, how she moves. There's a language to how she processes the morning versus the day, and all that stuff has become my language. But it it it, it both informs me, but is, I'm also informed by it. Like there's a there's this weird communal relationship between the words, right? When you're immersing, which is as I learn more. I'm changed more and become more like the language I'm learning. And I think this is why people rightly so should say that identity is in language. Yeah. And I, th it and I think, and I think language is symbolic. Um, like every word we have is a symbol for something. Right. And right. so the symbols we right. surround ourselves with, are going to inform who we are. Cause just like earlier in the conversation, culture does really matter. And so the symbols we use and, or don't use uh, really matter. This is why, like, if you're, if you're watching a lot of weird things, or if you're listening to a lot of weird things, or if you're surrounding yourself by people who are saying weird things, the language that they're using over time is going to shape your reality. That's yeah. different. It's like a different reality. Um, Cause you're, the symbolism is getting changed um, primarily and through the, the use of language. And the cynic, in me says what you said is super true and that people with super reach or power also believe it's super true and what they actually set out to do is provide a language that shapes me and you into something like what they need and maybe i'm describing politics <laughs> in that media in this country and this is what you realize about West Africa, especially for me, I think for you, it might've been a little different because of the way media invaded West Africa since I left it full time in the nineties. But for me, a day in West Africa was literally quiet in the sense you might catch a radio, but somebody would have to have battery. There was no electricity. So the batteries were really expensive. And so you would only really listen at night. Um, during the day, all you heard was farm implements and people talking. There was no media in that sense. And so that language, the media's language, it wasn't infiltrating the souls of West African farmers or American farmers, you know, in the 1920s. And so there, what language was allowed to grow within that? And that was something like the language of the family or the church. Yeah. Versus the language now of the NGO, let's say. Um, right, right. You see this all over West Africa. Just the sort of languages that NGOs implement through, like sometimes very formal vocabulary lists that they that they propagate um, informs how the locals. Wait, explain that because that's super. They, so the, the nonprofits, the non the non government organizations have they inculcate right. Like, what do you mean? Like they. They teach a script? Uh, pretty much. I mean, like, if you want funding for whatever your project is, for example, um, 
I forget the exact wordage of it now, but it's a something like women's causes or something like this is one of the key sort of categories of NGO development is like women's enablement or something like this, like enabling women to do just something vaguely, right? In general, it doesn't really have to be anything. And it doesn't really mean anything because it could be like, you could want money for um, a palm wine processing plant. And you could just simply say that this is going to enable women in some way and then you'll get that money because you and put we're local, those words. Wow. And this is local Mende or Temne people, you know, local Sierra Leoneans. They're sort of downloading this verbiage from nonprofit teachers and then repeating it to to outsiders. Totally. Yeah. They would they would talk to me about it of like when we were working together on grants, they would say something like, Oh, well, this is gonna enable women. And I'll be like, oh, inter like interesting how. And like they they wouldn't it wouldn't usually go beyond that like they wouldn't actually have like there wasn't like a long-term plan of like how we're going to you know incorporate four women into the processing of whatever it was more just they knew they had to stick that on their proposal in order to get funds they had to say this is going to benefit girls and women and and beyond that you know it, it didn't really matter but they they would then repeat that it's like oh we want to do this thing that enables women like what do you want to do we want to start honey and it's like oh those things seem to not correlate at all <laughs> <laughs> can i tell a quick story uh in mozambique and setting up our site assessment and we've just landed two first things guys in in, in northern mozambique well not so northern mid-central nampula but check this out when Josh and I arrived, we were introduced and brought to the, the mayor of this little town, Karane. And speaking of language, just like you just described, when he met me, he started a script. It was very odd. And I could tell, now he was an English speaker, but you know, they speak Portuguese and Makua, but in his English, now that you say it, it was like a script. And you know what it was about? It was about the vaccines. Mm, right. This was in 2021, early, or maybe, yeah, it might have been 20, no, 21, middle of 21. And he spoke to me about vaccines, assuming things about what I wanted to hear. And it was a script. And when I asked him how many people have COVID here, he literally said, Oh, I don't know. I don't think anybody has COVID. Right. And then there right. was this disconnect. I'm like, oh, because he had just given me the script. And what was the script? If people are interested, this was the script. Hi, nice to meet you. It's so good that you've come. We're so excited about the holiday that we've created. The holiday will allow all of our farmers to come in and receive the vaccine for the for COVID. And I was like, oh, and that the COVID vaccines will arrive and we will throw a holiday and the holiday will allow the farmers to receive the vaccine. And I was like, okay, but like how many people have COVID? And he was like, well, I don't right. think anybody has COVID. <laughs> he actually told me later, he said, that's a white man's disease. That's fact. Did he say that? Yeah. yeah he yeah. actually said that. Yeah. That's, I think I actually heard that in Sierra Leone when I was first breaking out. Um, yeah. Cause you were there. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Those are the exact sort of things where language has come in and it's sort of, getting regurgitated on a local level, not quite penetrating the soul yet. Like it's like, you can tell it hasn't penetrated deep down because like the the chief was saying, he doesn't really kind of, he just knows he has to say it to probably get funds or oh, yeah. get people to come, to but he funds. doesn't really get it. Um, like, 
so in some ways that's that's good um but it is no, but that's a great point you're making in some ways it's good in, in in other words in some ways it's you know what it's like it's like a pitch like if i know some chinese billionaire standing there i'm going to talk to him a certain way right but i really don't believe it it, it's that's exact, and that's maybe the heart of why it's why it's weird is because we don't actually believe what we're saying, and um, whether these NGOs actually believe what they're saying when they're kind of trying to propagate this sort of, you know, uh, preferred speech uh, about you know how you need to you know include women and girls on all these proposals that have nothing to do with women and girls, nor should they. Um, it's it's kind of a lie, I would think, is maybe the is maybe yeah. the thing that's weird about it is it's ultimately a lie, um, and. Man, you want to hear my really cynical self? This is my really cynical self. Deep down, I actually think that none of those issues are particularly salient for the non for the big nonprofits. Nor are they salient or interesting to the West Africans and East Africans who are adopting them. I actually think this is a movement by smart people elites around the world to create consumers and mm. to create you know the female to the male so you got a plug-in right you need the right plug-in and when we get the right plug-in then we can send the electricity to the right places um that's my super cynical self i think most people would agree that's not that cynical um that's sort of the history of colonialism but when you experience in africa like we did it's a really sad thing. It is. Yeah, it is. It is sad. And it goes back to our first conversation, ultimately, of like work and, you know, consumerism yeah. and just kind of how we see all these things. Because I think in the Western mind, it doesn't make sense why people aren't, why people aren't working or developing in a particular Western way. And so first, maybe pushing the language, which then allows the sort of foundation for yeah. Western methods, maybe the, the Protestant method of working in a particular way in a capitalist society is like the goal, whether it's conscious or not. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's a, I haven't thought too much about that, like at a, at a macro level, but it's a good, it's a, it's an interesting thought and it, and it seems to check out. All right. Listen, will you come back? Um, I'd love to have you back with some other of our field workers who have also returned home. You're sort of the leader of that group on some level. Plus you invited me to your wedding. So uh, we're it's going, Helen keeps pointing, pointing to it on the refrigerator. Nice. So, I'm excited to have you guys. Yeah. We love you, man. So there's more to say. We can't say it right now. Um, maybe, I don't know. Give us one more word. America. And your return and and first things, um, you recommend such a thing, such an endeavor to go for two years? It's a long time. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's. I don't think it's for everybody. I will say, you know, in full transparency, I don't think first things is like what everyone ought to do. Um, but I think it's great for the right people. Um, yeah. If you're the kind of person who I, I think Daniel said this once, you kind of are wrestling with why there is so much suffering when there seems like there 
shouldn't be, and yet it still exists and kind of how to reconcile that. I think First Things provides a context and a lens to to struggle against that and to understand what that means, to kind of search for the underlying currents of why we do what we do by going somewhere that's totally foreign um, and seeing yourself maybe for the first time outside of yourself uh, in a place where you where you have none of the sort of um, so support structure that you're used to. So for that, I am just incredibly grateful. And, and I think it could be a great experience for so many people. Austin Kleiss. All right. We'll talk to you up there, Massachusetts. Thanks for coming on brother. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Much love. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We'll get back to you. Well, thanks a lot, Austin Kleiss for coming on. Austin, man, you see how he has wisdom beyond his age. That I even just said that tells you how old I am. Because he's not that young. You know, at, at, at 30, like at 30, you know, at 30, people had like 12 kids already because they got married at 12, you know, back in the old world. Like, come on, Austin. Who, do, who loves you? First Things Foundation loves you. www.first-things.org. Please consider this. Consider coming to our fundraiser on May 6th. Spend a weekend in Greenville. Come listen to some live music, some good live music. I'll tell you the band as soon as I lock it down. May 6th, a giant capy. Lots of giveaways. Great donations to be had and a ton of good live music. First Things Foundation concert, May 6th. Lots of stuff popping. Check out our merch store. Definitely go become a recurring donor and join our Substack online class once a month, our Q&A session. I'd love for you guys to go check out the Substack. All right, that's heavy things lightly. I love you. God bless. Take care. Peace out.